one of the things that um, I learned early on as a dad was that never there were certain things that I didn't have to teach my children how to do that just came very naturally to them. So when we were teaching our kids uh, when they were very little, trying to teach them to we moved them out of the crib because they were starting to like hike out of it, try to climb out of it, they were falling and hitting their heads. So we thought maybe it's time to put them in a, in a bed. And so we begin the process of training them. And I say training because again, this is not a natural thing for a child to put them in a bed with no rails and then to expect them to sleep there for like 12 hours without getting out of bed. And so uh, we would very clearly explain to, and I remember just very, uh, like it was yesterday, my, my second oldest boy, we were putting him in his bed and we'd say, now, uh, this is your bed, this is where you sleep, this is your, this is your happy place, you know, you, you stay here, you don't, you don't leave here, this is your spot, your zone. Do not get outside the zone. And we created like a zone of, of kind of safety and refuge for him. And if you get outside this zone, things are going to go badly for you. So it'd be, it'd be great for you just to stay in this zone so we don't have to go to that, to that level. And so um, every night without fail, he would violate the zone. And so I remember we'd be sitting out in the living room watching t television. And his bedroom was just down the hallway. And so we would, we would walk out of the, the bedroom, shut his door behind us go and sit down in what we were hoping to be a relaxing hour or two after an exhausting day of just chasing them around and, and encouraging them uh, to, to obey. And uh, without fail, in about 10 minutes, we would hear things begin to crash in the bedroom. So we'd hear like, you know, toys begin to crash and, and I, I, we weren't exactly sure what was going on, but we had a pretty good idea. And even sometimes we'd see the light flick up, you know, so like there's the little shadow underneath the door. And so it was amazing. Kids have like a, like the scent of a bloodhound. It's so like the moment we make a move towards the bedroom, like the lights go off and we hear um, the squishing of diapers. It's like an unmistakable sound as a parent. As they're running back to the bed and jumping into bed and then begin the process of throwing the covers over their head and pretending like they're asleep. So any of you that are parents here that are, that are listening, you know that, that feeling. Maybe, you, maybe your kids weren't like that, but mine were all like that. And, and so um, we would go in, and of course we begin the process of, you know, kind of you know, grilling them, like, I know you're not asleep, quit pretending. And of course they're smiling and laughing, you know, even though they're trying to pretend like they're asleep. And so um, it was amazing, though, because we, we never taught them that. That was not in the, in the parenting manual. That was not a part of the training for them. I, I, would, I never had to sit them down afterwards and say, uh, you know, we, we, I never prepped them up before bed and said, now, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to explain to you this rule, this law, the shield's home, about staying in your bed. Then I'm going to go turn the lights off. And after I leave the room, I want you to get up. And I want you to find that toy that you've been wanting to play with. I want you just to start going wild, man. Get in there, play, crash it around. And then as soon as I get ready to come back in the room and discipline you, I want you to take off running, throw yourself in the bed, and throw the covers over your head. That conversation never happened. Um, they just, because they were rebels from the time they were little, they, they just learned how to deceive. And, uh, and so they became experts at it. And, and even now I'm sure they're, they're, they're doing it when we don't know they're doing it. And so there was that kind of thing with and then there was this um, thing that had began to happen around around uh, 18 months where they would bite things, bite people, bite, I mean, bite anything. They would bite, like, furniture. We found, like, hunks of wood missing, like, what happened, you know? Um, but, but when they especially went to the nursery at church, my, my, again, my second oldest seems to be the one that um, always has the issues. Um, he began to uh, bite other children in the nursery. And if there's one golden rule in the nursery that will always get you kicked out of every nursery, you don't bite. And especially you don't break the skin when you bite. So I try to teach him to bite gentle, you know, but he didn't really get that. So he bites uh, violently. And, and again, it was amazing because we, we never, there, where would he learn that? 
Like, like when Emily and I get into, my wife and I get into an argument or a debate or a fight sometimes, like, I, 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 there's never a moment where I go, I'm just so mad at you, and I'm just, I'll just bite her. I mean, it just doesn't happen. I, I, I'm going to take a little bite. Like, in, in my anger and frustration, I've never once since we've mar- been married tempted to bite her, ever. That, that would just be weird. Like, where did he see that modeled at home? Like, there was never, I mean, some of the things my kids do, like, I know, okay, that's, that's Emily. She does that. Or that's, that's me. I do that. But with biting, I mean, there was just never, I mean, again, like, never that moment where I sat him down and said, bro, when somebody steals your toy, I want you to rise up in anger and just bite them as hard as you can on the face or the arm or the leg and just take a chunk of skin so they bleed real good. Like, that just wasn't a part of the regimen. It wasn't a part of the training. And like, where does that come from? Where do, where do they learn to do that? Like, and, and it gets more sophisticated the older you get. So you guys are experts at this. And you're, you're, you don't, maybe you don't bite now, although I think some of you do. Um, but but there's, there's all kinds of ways that we just, we just rebel against the rules and we, we don't have to be taught. We don't have to be trained. Now, where does all that come from? And if you remember where we left the story of the kingdom last night, we left it in a pretty idyllic place. We left in this, you know, that we talked about the kingdom of God as something that Jesus is, is bringing. And the kingdom of God goes all the way back to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden where God establishes his rule and his reign, his perfect rule and his perfect reign. And we said that out of nothing, um, God paints on the canvas of creation and he begins to create all that is out of nothing. We said there's this harmony and this rhythm that is established in Genesis 1. And it goes by the let there be statement. So let there be light. And so literally out of nothing, God begins to pull. There's, there's no pre-existing resources. So God doesn't use any pre-existing matter or nature or resources. God just says through the, through the words of his mouth, he begins to speak things into existence. And so he says, let there be um, the cosmos where there was no cosmos. Let there be stars where there were no stars. Let there be galaxies where there were no galaxies. Let there be trees where there were no trees. Let there be cells where there were no human cells. Let there be atoms where there were no atoms. Let there be molecules where there were no molecules. And on and on we could go into all of these things that God just weaves together out of nothing. And he creates this idyllic, perfect place um, in the the Garden of Eden, kind of as the the consummation, the, the climax of all that, where he creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in the garden. And he says, you're to take dominion over this area. And so in that moment, we said last night, there, there's joy, there's worship, there's freedom, there's no guilt, there's no shame. So where did it all go wrong? Like Genesis 1 and 2 paint this great scenario of what life looks like when it's defined by God. When God is the center of our lives, we said uh, there's freedom and joy there. Well, if you turn over in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3, again, we know, um, a lot of us know the story, but maybe we haven't thought about how this applies to us. And so we're going to read together some, uh, some verses from Genesis Chapter 3, and I want you to see how the kingdom was lost very quickly. So it didn't take very long for Adam and Eve to be on the scene, enjoying this very idyllic, and temptation comes, and now the kingdom is lost here in Genesis chapter 3. And then I want to say some things to you that I think might sting, but I hope that they sting in a good way. I hope, they, I hope it hurts good tonight. So, <clears throat> Genesis chapter 3, starting verse 1, we're going to see where the kingdom begins to unravel, and what, um, what we now find ourselves caught up in as human beings and what humans ever since then have found themselves swept up into. So Genesis chapter 1, um, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree? 
in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall eat not you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you what? Die. Die. Alright. So don't touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I want you to see uh, in this story in the beginning, and we'll kind of track this out in just a second, but I want you to see in the beginning of this story that rebellion always begins with an assault on the character and the nature of God. Rebellion always begins with a questioning of God's goodness and His love for us. And so if you notice in the story, the serpent comes and he begins to tempt Eve. He immediately begins to draw attention to and to question whether or not God is truly good and whether His love for us is real. And so he's, he's essentially trying to undermine the idea that God is good, that God is loving, that God is perfect, that His love and mercy for us is enough for us. And so he begins to say things like, did God really say? Is this really what God said? He begins to question God's commands and to kind of take these commands that were given for life and now to turn them and to twist them, which is always what sin really is. It's taking something good, something that was meant for our good, and twisting it and distorting it. And now questioning, did God really say this? And, and so what he begins to say to essentially to Adam and Eve is, God is keeping something from you. In giving you the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God is trying to keep something from you, not give something to you. God is trying to keep... So, so what he says is, you, um, if you eat of this tree, God knows that you're going to have this knowledge, that you're going to become wise. Like, like we, we have this knowledge that God does not have. Um, and, and so if we eat this tr from the tree of the knowledge of good and, e good and evil, now we are going to possess and be like God. And God is, God is jealous. God's some kind of a megalomaniac. He does not want anybody else to be like him. And so God is, God is trying to keep you from experiencing something that will man, just open your eyes. It will give you a greater perspective on life. It will make you more like God. And so in this moment, what we begin to see is this pattern of sinfulness that leads us to question God's goodness to us. And really, isn't that all sin is? I mean, think about it. Think about any temptation that you're struggling with, whether it be lust, whether it be greed, whether it be bitterness. I mean, whatever the temptation for you is, all temptation is ultimately wrapped up in this idea that um, this thing is better than, than God. And that God, God is keeping something from me. And so if I'll, if I'll move towards this thing, if I'll engage in this habit, if I'll do this thing, then there's going to be satisfaction and joy that will come to me that is greater than the satisfaction and joy that Christ offers to me in His kingdom. I mean, that is the root of all sin. It's saying, you know what? God is not enough for me. And, and ultimately, I think, if you were to take it a step further, I think it may be to say that God is not for my joy. This is another way to say it. God is not ultimately for my joy. God is ultimately an enemy of my joy. And so when God gives me a command, when God tells me to wait until I'm married to have sex, when God tells me uh, not to lie, when God tells me to honor my father and my mother, even though I don't feel like honoring them, and even though sometimes they're not worthy of honor, in that moment, what God is trying to do is to rob me of something that I deserve. That's mine by right, by entitlement. 
And so that, that's how sin works. It, it leads us into this really uh, ridiculous mindset that God somehow is against our joy. And so for many of us, we walk in this idea that God is an enemy of our joy. That somehow God does not want our joy and our happiness. That ultimately, he is oppressing or suppressing our joy. And, and, and for whatever reason, like God is up there mocking us, you know. You know, like God's making fun of us. Like, look at those, you know, stupid, you know, creatures down there. They can't, you know, I'm going to keep this from them and see if they can figure it out. Like, God is some kind of a cosmic policeman who's just after our begrudging submission and not after our joy. So we oftentimes think that God's God's plan, His commands, are are, are intended to to take something from us or to keep something from us that would make us be satisfied more than just Him. And so um, let me just read you, because this is an insane idea. This really is an insane idea, but this is the way that we think. So let me just read you a couple of verses from the Psalms, because I want you to know that God is not the enemy of your joy. As matter, a matter of fact, there's nobody that wants more joy for you than God. There's nobody on this planet that wants, even your parents, even your friends, there's nobody that has in mind your joy more than the God of the universe, more than the God who created you, who knows you, who loves you. There's nobody that wants your joy more than Him. So let me just, in case you don't believe me, because again, I think that sometimes we just think that God is, is just robbing us of joy. Man, God does not want us to experience any kind of happiness in this life. Um, Psalm 37, 4, one that you probably heard before, delights yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now again, that's not a blank check just to say, well, if I, if I go to church and I check the box, then God's going to give me a scholarship or God's going to give me a position on the team or God's going to give me... It's not the same, but he's saying if you will delight yourself, if you will make God your treasure, he will give you the desires. He will grant you the desires of your heart. He will make his desires your desires. Like God wants that for you. So God's not opposed to you. He wants your joy. Um, Psalm 1611, another great little passage. We see the same idea. Psalm 1611 says this. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Eternal pleasures. Greater than any pleasure that we can imagine. Greater than, greater than sex. Greater than, um, than, than, than money. Greater than any pleasure that you are currently seeking. The Bible says that in God's presence is the fullness of that thing. That thing is a shadow. That thing is a shadow. That thing that you want so desperately to have, that thing that you think, if I could just acquire this thing, if I could obtain this thing, if I could get into this relationship that I want so badly, the Bible says that is nothing compared to the joy that God has for you. It is, it is so minuscule. It is so small compared to the presence of God uh, in your life. And so those things are shadows. They are pointers to an eternal reality with God that is so much greater, more satisfying and fulfilling than a temporary fleeting joy that we find ourselves just chasing. Like, don't we all the time just find ourselves chasing? We're going after this thing, we're going after this thing, and we're constantly jumping after these things. And yet the Bible says the greatest proponent of our joy is His God. Now let me read you one more uh, verse, and we'll move on here. But one more verse, um, Psalm 34, 8, says the same thing in a different way. It says that, uh, he's, uh, this is David writing, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see God's goodness. There's nobody that wants good for you more than God. 
So it's, it's this crazy idea sometimes that we get that sometimes God uh, wants to rob us of joy, wants to keep us, that he's an enemy of our joy. And just like you know, when I tell my, I, my children not to do something, I tell them not to run out in the street, they, they get angry at me, you know, as if I'm trying to rob them of having this great free experience out in the middle of the street when I know that if they do, they're going to end up like that squirrel or like that, you know, like that possum sitting in the middle of the road, just squashed. And that's how we explain that to my kids. You see that possum right there? That's going to be you if you go in the middle of the street. So, you know, have at it. Good luck. You know, and so we kind of try to scare them into that. But but, but they, they get angry at me as if I don't want their joy. As if, you know, when I tell them not to stick their finger in a socket, um, that like I'm somehow just, you know, tamping down their joy. And so many times, many of us, we rage against our parents, right? Because we think our parents are idiots. And so when they tell us, man, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant, I'm nervous about this relationship, I'm nervous about this thing you're into, I'm nervous about the trajectory that you're on, we immediately go, you know, we just, we just kind of shut them out. And we say, man, they, they just don't know what they're talking about. As if us in our 14 years of experience and enlightenment and all the education that we have and all the life experience that we have and all that we know about relationships is, is going to be so much greater than what our parents who've lived decades which in our mind is crazy because that actually disqualifies them from knowing anything. It's like the more decades you have behind you, the dumber you are. And you know what's funny is the, the older that you get, what I've found in my experience, the older that I get is that my parents become smarter every year that I live. And so the things that my parents were telling me, but again, we rage against that, right? We rebel against that. We, we say things like, I'm going to show them how dumb they are. I'm just going to throw myself into this immorality and I'll show them. I'm going to throw myself into this relationship. I'm going to throw myself into this thing that they hate. And we become that very thing that, that our parents despise. But uh, you've got to understand your parents love you. And it's the same thing with God. God's not glorified in making you miserable. Like sometimes we get this idea that God is up in heaven, you know, kind of just like glorying in our misery. Like, man, I'll show them, I'll make them miserable, I'll make them angry, I'll just take things from them, and I'll just make them suffer, and, and I'll just be glorified in that. And when people look at that, they're just going to say, oh, what a great God who makes them so miserable. It's not what God does. And you know what the truth is about this whole thing? Um, this is kind of a hard truth, so I just want to say this to you. And I want you just to kind of chew on this and think about this. You know who the greatest enemy of your joy is? It's not God. It's not your parents. It's not your friends. You know who the greatest enemy of your joy is? You are. You are the greatest enemy of your joy. Nobody has lied to you more. Nobody's deceived you more. Nobody's broken more promises than you have to yourself. There's not a greater enemy of your joy on this planet than you. I mean, even in the last week, in the last month, in the last year, how many times have you made a promise, I'm going to stop doing this, I'm going to stop doing this, and then we fall into this pattern of self-deception, and, and then we find ourselves just broken over and over and over again. And we want to blame everybody else, right? We want to say, well, it was my parents' fault because they did this. It was my friend's fault because they made me do this. It's, you know, it's like, it's the devil, he made me do it. We want, to, we want to blame it on anybody. We don't want to look inside of our own heart and say, maybe I'm the one that's the enemy of my own joy. But there's nobody that's been a greater enemy to your joy than you have, and than I have. And we deceive ourselves. And that's the essence of rebellion. It's a failure to acknowledge that we are actually in rebellion. That we're rebels. And so, um, let's go on down, now that you're encouraged by that truth, to Genesis 3, verse 7. So when sin is introduced, when Eve eats of the 
tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she gives some to her passive husband who's standing by watching her instead of uh, intervening and initiating and being the man that God had called him to be. Um, she gives some to him, and so they both fall into sin, and now there's a fracturing of the kingdom. The kingdom in that moment, actually backing up to the point at where Eve begins to desire that fruit and to see it and to be, and to be tempted to draw into that through her desires, that, at that moment the kingdom was lost. Rebellion had taken place, and now the kingdom that God had created, where there was no sin, where there was no death, where there was nothing but perfection, where God was the center of the universe, has now been fractured and lost. And so we continue on down in, in verse 7, and we see what begins to happen. There's a shift that's going to take place in humanity's experience with God, in humanity's experience with each other, and humanity's experience with, um, with creation itself. And look at what happens. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were not naked. For the first time, they experienced guilt and shame. And the Bible says that they uh, sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves a covering of loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, a sound that ten minutes ago would have been a relief, would have been a joy, because there's, there's worship. And look at what happens. And the man and his wife did what? They hid themselves. From the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Rebellion always causes us to run away from God, not towards God. You see, in those moments when we are actively in rebellion, when we find ourselves engrossed in sin, when we find ourselves engaged in this pattern of behavior, you know the, you know, the one person that we need the most is God, and yet the Bible says that we are prone to run away from Him. That's why the, the old hymn says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to lead the God that I love. We are all prone to wander away from God, to run from church, to run from our support, and to ultimately run from God, to hide ourselves, to try to cover ourselves, to try to fix ourselves because we are ashamed of who we've become. We look inside of our hearts and we see the rebellion, we see the wickedness, we see the darkness that's inside of our hearts that we hate so badly. There's shame and there's guilt and there's hiding. But the Lord God called to the man, so God comes to them, and he says to him, where are you? And he said, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So you see the pattern? There's, there's blaming, there's blame shifting, there's rationalizing, there's defending. And there's a shift in our experience with God. The joy that was once there, just moments before, is now replaced by a sense of angst, by a sense of anxiety, by a sense of fear and trepidation. There's no longer a, a freedom to approach God and to be near to God. Now there's, there's, a, there's a drawing back. There's a withdrawing from God. There's a running away from God. There's angst. And we feel that sense of angst. Freedom is replaced by slavery. We become enslaved by those things that now become the objects of our desire. And so now those things that we run to instead of running to God now begin to enslave us. They hold power over us, right? Isn't that true of all sin? Like it has a mastery over you. Even when you don't want it to, even when you desperately want to please Jesus and you're walking in sin, then it just owns you. It owns you. And you, it is, as badly as you want to break it, you can't break through um, innocence is replaced by guilt. Worship is replaced by idolatry. That's ultimately what happens as the kingdom is lost. Now, how does this play itself out into 
our experience. How does this play? So what does this have to do with you? Because um, I don't know about you guys, but I haven't really found uh, myself being ultimately kind of drawn into temptation by any snakes lately, okay? So, you know, what does this look like in 21st century? We're not worshiping idols and we're not being tempted by snakes. How does this, how do we experience this? And because I know some of you right now are going, uh-uh, not me. I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. I'm a religious person. Man, I go to church. I try to be a good person. Man, I'm not a rebel. Yeah, that's too strong for me, bro. Man, Brady, you're talking about somebody else. You're not talking about me. Man, I, you know, I, I pay my, I go, I tithe. Uh, you know, I, I, I do the things that I'm supposed to do. I try to be a good son. I try to be a good daughter. You're not talking about me. Well, I want to just show you. Um, if you have your Bible, again, flip over to Romans chapter 1. And I just want to unpack this for you real quickly. And how I see this play itself out in our lives. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament, right after the book of Acts. It's going to show us the progression of sin. It's going to unpack what happens after the kingdom is lost and how we find ourselves caught up in this pattern of rebellion. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. What this verse just said is that you and I, and everybody since Adam and Eve, have, a, have an inclination, a default mode in our hearts. Our default mode is not to acknowledge God, not to honor God, not to esteem God, not to really have any uh, place for God in our lives. And even though we know God and we know His commands and we know what's right and we know we can see in nature, we can see in creation the evidences of God's goodness and His mercy, and most of us have grown up in church and we've heard about the Ten Commandments, and I don't have to walk you through that you're a liar, that you're a thief, that you're a, that you're a murderer, that you're you know an adulterer. Like Jesus redefines those and tells us. So even though we know those things to be true, we know the path that we should walk. The Bible says that um, we become futile in our thinking, that our, our our hearts are darkened. And so what sin does to us is that it makes us honestly insane. It makes us irrational. It, 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 it teases us into thinking that we are now wise and we don't we don't need God because we now know what's best for us. And so we essentially say to God, I don't need you. I don't need your law. I know what's best for me. And what I want is this relationship. What I want is this, I want to purchase this thing. I want to, I want to look at this thing. I want to go to this place. I want to be in this relationship. We say to God, I mean, God, uh, forget you. I don't, I don't need you. I've got all the equipment and the resources that I need in my own life to take care of myself. 
And that is the essence of sin. Is, and that's really what idolatry is. It's claiming to be wise, thinking that we are wiser than any of our peers, than any of our authorities, and that we know what's best for us. And so we begin to say things in our insanity like, uh, well, nobody else understands me. Nobody else knows what I'm going through. And so that somehow gives us an excuse to just act however we want to. And so now we all have an excuse. We all have a card to play um, in our act of rebellion. And so um, it's interesting because he uses this language of, of an exchange. And he says that we exchange the truth about God um, for a lie and begin to worship creation rather than the Creator. This is idolatry. And this is the ultimate expression of rebellion. And what we begin to do is we begin to put our hope, we begin to put our weight, we begin to put our energy into things that are not God, hoping that in them we will find the satisfaction and joy that can only be found in God. And that's the exchange that we make. We, we exchange and we trade on God's goodness, His promises, that if we will delight in Him, that He will give us the desires of our heart. And we say, well, that's not good enough because I don't like that or I'm not patient enough for that or I don't, I don't see that bearing fruit in my life. And so I, now I know what's best for me. And so we begin to trade on that and exchange the truth that really satisfaction and fulfillment and the fullness of life can be found in something other than God. It can be found in a relationship. And so we begin to trade on that. We begin to put our hope in this thing. So we begin to say things like, if I just had this thing, then I'd be satisfied. Then I'd be fulfilled. Then, you know, if I could just um, have this status, if I could just get into this relationship, if I could just make this team, if I could make the band, if I could have this skill set, if I could have this talent, if I could have whatever the thing is, if I could have, uh, you know, if I could just fill in the blank. It's, all, it's different for everybody. But, but we begin to try to put our hope into that. And a hope that, that from that thing, we can now draw the joy and the satisfaction that we so desperately long for. To, to, to find in those things intimacy, to be known by a person, to be known in a relationship the way that only God can really know us. And so we get to expose deep parts of our hearts, deep parts of our bodies, for instance, to other people, hoping that we're going to find that what we so desperately long for, that acceptance. That intimacy that the Bible says only comes from a relationship with God. Let me just give you a really easy example. Um, and, and this is one that I think, and let's not pretend like in high school this doesn't happen. Um, I mean, I think sexuality is the easiest one to talk about. Because we all struggle. We all struggle. 85%, um, I think statistics have shown since uh, Adam and Eve fell, uh, of high school students have struggled with their sexuality. With sexual morality. I mean, 85% of students who graduate from high school are not virgins. And that's public school, private school, Christian school. That's across the board. And I believe that. I haven't been a youth pastor for a long time. I believe that. And so uh, we, we used to talk about something called the sex love trade-off. And I don't know if Derek's taught you guys this before or talked about this. Um, but it's, it's the fact that uh, when we, we, we kind of buy into this lie. And so here's what, what girls and guys will do. They'll, they'll make a trade when it comes to sex. And so girls will trade... Um, real sex, and, and what they get in return is fake love. Girls, you know what I'm talking about? You girls know what I'm talking about? You give your body, you give sex, because what you really want is you really want love from a man. You want acceptance. You want intimacy from a guy. You want to be known at a deep level that God actually created you. He wired you to experience that in the context of a covenant relationship. But you train, and so you give away real sex, and what, all, what happens with the girl is in return, you get fake love. And you know what a guy does? Uh, because a guy really just wants, uh, most guys are wired physically, they want the sex. They give fake love, and in exchange, they give real sex. Now, who always ends up on the bad side of that equation? Girls. And ladies, this is not true. 
And so what happens when you break up, because inevitably that's what happens, right? We all, you always break up. And I don't mean to be like the prophet of doom, but it's coming. So if you think that that's not you, and you think you're going to be accept, the exception because he says he loves you, because he says he's for you, and he's never going to do X, Y, Z, that somehow that's going to protect you, um, I'm just telling you, it's coming. Okay, there's only two options. You get married or you break up, right? There's only two options in a relationship. And so for some of you who are like 14 and you're thinking, he's going to be the one. I doubt it. it. Maybe you're the exception. Maybe maybe your parents had that story where they fell in love when they were like eight years old and they grew up and they got married. Okay, I'll give you that one. But that's that's like 1% of the time. The rest of you, you are doomed for breakup. And so what happens when you break up is that he gets off and he tells his buddies and he high fives and he feels good. And what happens? The girl's over there crying her guts out because now she's giving a piece of her heart to a guy. And she's devastated. It's a sex love trade-off. We exchange the truth of God for a lot. And we think that if we put our hope in this guy, that it's going to turn out like the Jerry Maguire movie, you know, he's going to complete me. The most ridiculous statement ever made in the history of movies. A girl cannot complete you. A guy cannot complete you. He will never be able to deliver. So what happens when we put that weight on a person in a relationship is they begin to collapse under the weight of that because they were not designed to hold the weight up. They were never designed to complete you. And so here's what happens, and, and I see this all the time. I see this in my own life. We begin to build our identity on a thing, on a person, a relationship, a purchase, uh, a, a position of some kind, whether it be an athletic or academic achievement or accomplishment of some kind. We begin to say to ourselves, and we begin to lie to ourselves and deceive ourselves, and we say, if I will get this thing, then this will make my life complete. This will um, satisfy my deepest longings. This will bring me the respect. This will bring me the image. This will bring me whatever it is that you are wanting, the joy that you're wanting. And, and one of two things happen, and both are equally bad. On the one hand, you can actually get that thing that you so desperately want. And sometimes, sometimes that's the worst thing that can happen. You get that relationship. You get that spot on the team. And what happens? It doesn't deliver on what it promised. And you don't get the joy, the satisfaction, the fulfillment that you thought you were going to get. And so you begin to get, get angry and frustrated and bitter because, you know, now this thing that you thought was going to bring you this thing, when you actually got it and you obtained it and you grabbed hold of it, what happens? Disappointment. And you know what's insane about this? You know what's ironic about this? Is that um, we will go through a bad relationship and we will, we will be completely devastated. And then we will trick ourselves into thinking that, well, if I'll just do it again, then it'll get better. And so more of this thing that never satisfied me in the first place is the answer. I mean, this is the insanity of sinfulness, right? This is the insanity of rebellion. If I'll do more of this thing, which has not brought me any of the satisfaction that I desire, and I'll just give myself. And so we throw ourselves into it. And I've seen girls throw themselves into immorality, just completely head first into it, thinking that somehow this is going to bring some kind of joy and satisfaction. I've seen guys throw themselves into things, and, and, and it never works. And so that's one route that it can take. When you rebel, you think that it's going to bring the thing, and it doesn't. On the other hand, you cannot get the thing. This is the second option. This thing that you so desperately want. And then what happens? When you don't get the thing, when you don't get the job, you don't get the scholarship, you don't get the, the person, you don't get whatever it is that you're desiring to have, um, now you get frustrated and bitter and angry at God because you say, God, um, this is, you know, this is, I'm entitled to this. You promised me. You begin to say things like that. As if God promised anything other than himself. 
And so we get frustrated and angry. And some of us are ticked. If we're to be honest, we are ticked at God. We are angry with God because he didn't give us X, Y, Z. And you know what happens in that moment when you get frustrated and angry at God? You know what's happening right there? Your heart's being exposed. Because what you wanted really wasn't God. It was the thing. And God was just a means by which you get the thing. See, that's idolatry. When you are using God, sometimes we use God to get that thing that we really want. And when we don't get the thing that we want, we're devastated. We're angry. We're bitter. And so some of us are very bitter. We're very angry because we're walking in a season of idolatry and rebellion against God. And that's how sinfulness plays itself out. And so I just want to kind of ask you the question that, you know, this can happen in any arena of life. We can take good things, and when we, when we take good things and we make them ultimate things in our life, that is idolatry. That is idolatry. When you take anything in your life, it can be morally neutral. It can be sports, okay? Um, there are men, grown men, that I know, that live uh, all over the country. Indianapolis, West Palm Beach is an amazing phenomenon. There are grown men who um, will get physically ill the night before the, a, a major game for the sports team of their choice. Okay? They literally, their hope and their expectation and their joy rides on whether or not an 18-year-old man can throw, a boy, 18-year-old boy, emerging man, can throw a ball through a hoop. And they will get physically sick the night before Kentucky and Duke play. Okay? I mean, I think there's some misplaced hope there. Can we all agree that when you're getting all upset and you're getting emotionally, psychologically, and mentally affected by the outcome of a ball game, is there not some idolatry there? Is there not some misplaced worship? I mean, again, I don't mean that sounds like a dumb example. I'm just there. There are all kinds of things we can place our hope. It can be a number of good things, but when, we, when those things become take a place where they are uppermost in our affections, that is idolatry. We make a good thing an ultimate thing. That can happen with family. That can happen with a job. That can happen with success. That can happen with sex, sexuality or relationship. That can happen with pleasure. That can happen with a number of things. When we take a good thing, we make that thing ultimate. We begin to give to that thing energy, hope. Um, we begin to give to that, and we empower that thing in a place that's well beyond work, and it, it eventually begins to take the place of God in our life, and our joy begins to ride on whether or not that thing comes through for us. Now, let me just read this last verse here in Romans again. This is a scary passage for me. It says, For this reason... Because we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, we begin to worship and serve creature rather than the creator. We begin to worship other things rather than God, put our hope in other things rather than God. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Can I just tell you that uh, some of you guys, when it comes to your rebellion, you think that you're getting away with it? You think that nobody else knows. And you look at your life and you go, yeah, man, I'm doing this, but I don't see any lightning bolts. Like, where's God at? He's not, he's not throwing me. You know, the Old Testament, when you, when you disobeyed, like, God, 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 you know, burned people alive. I mean, God opened up the earth and it swallowed them up immediately. You know, I mean, God killed somebody in the Old Testament for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And, and, and so we kind of rebel in these subtle ways. And again, um, you know, it could be a heart issue. It could be something as small as a, a root of bitterness in your heart towards somebody. It could be gossip. It could be something. I'm not talking about the spectacular things. I'm not just talking about sex and drugs and rock and roll like the big sins of the 80s, you know. Uh, it could be just something small. It could be something so insignificant. Ungratefulness, bitterness, these things that can take root in our heart, that are attitudes, dispositions of the heart. Towards your parents, towards your friends, towards authorities. 
And we look at our lives and we go, man, where's God? Like, he's not punishing me. He's not bringing any wrath. You know what's interesting? You know what's even scarier than sometimes than the active wrath of God? It's the passive wrath of God. You know what the passive wrath of God is? When God just says, fine, I'm going to give you over to this thing. And the Bible literally says there are times when God, when you're engaged in particular habits or sinful patterns, where God will just say, fine, you want that thing more than me? Here you go. And God will let us walk through a season of misery. Chasing after those things, rebelling against Him, and finding ultimately at the end of that journey, when we've hit the bottom, that the thing cannot deliver, cannot satisfy, cannot fulfill, does not bring about the joy that we hope to bring about. Now, anybody been there? I've been there. Some of you are there right now. Some of you are at that bottom, and you could say tonight, man, it is not satisfying. It is not bring about. It is not fulfill me the way that I thought that it would. And in fact, I, I am devastated. I am angry. I'm bitter. I'm hurt. I'm, I, I feel shameful. You know what the, at the end of that process a lot of times is? It's just a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and a lot of embarrassment. And some of you are there. Some of you are on your way there and you don't even know it. Some of you tonight are on your way there. You are on your way to discovering that that thing that you put all of your weight in, that you put all of your time into, that you spend lots of money on, at the end of the process is not going to be able to, to deliver for you that thing that you hope that it will. And so I, I just want to ask you the question tonight. Um, where do you find yourself in this rebellion? I mean, we're all rebels. Since the fall, we are all rebels by nature and by choice. We have the blood of Adam and Eve coursing through our veins. We are sinful to the core. We make sinful decisions. We make sinful choices. We are all in an act of rebellion. Uh, because I, I think there are different kinds of rebellion probably taking place here tonight. Some of you are just in outright rebellion. Some of you are just walking right out in rebellion. You're saying, I don't, I don't even care. I don't care. I'm doing this thing, and I don't care. I don't care if my parents know about it. I don't care if my friends know about it. Man, I don't care. I don't care what God thinks. I'm just going to walk, and I'm going to live the way that I want to live because I don't need God. I just, I just, I, I know God's commands, but I'm just, I, I don't care. And, and then I don't even need to read you. The Bible has some very scary things to say to you if you find yourself in that place. To presume upon the grace of God and to say, well, and I'm a Christian, but I'm just going to live this way. And there are some terrorizing verses in the Bible that speak to that. And I just want to warn you that you are in danger. You're in danger. God will not be mocked. His patience doesn't last forever. There are others of you who are walking tonight in some sin and, and you, you want to help God out. So you want to you want to kind of explain why your particular case is okay, and so we're always looking for an excuse, right? We're always looking to defend. We're always looking to rationalize. We're always looking for a reason to kind of say, well, God, you know, if God only understood my case, He would give me a pass. You know, if God knew what I was going through at home, if God knew that my parents were walking through a divorce, if God knew that my friends had all turned their back on me, if God knew that I just uh, have wanted this relationship for so long and now it's finally come through for me and I've just got to walk through this door and I've got to see this thing through. If God knew my reason, if God knew the way that I was made, if God knew that I had this proclivity, if God just knew, I mean, you know, my, my grandfather was this way, my dad was this way, or my mom didn't hug me enough, or whatever, whatever the reason is. We all want to have an excuse. I've never met a person, I've done years of marriage counseling now, and I've never met the husband and wife who walked into my office and said, you know what, man, I'm just, I'm just jacked up, and man, uh, I, I'm sorry, and I, just, I know this is my fault, and I just got to get, I mean, there's always a reason. There's always a reason that like marriage counseling, I mean, the husband's all, well, she's this way, or he's this way, or if you just heard the way that he talked to me, it's, it's, there's always an excuse. 
And so we feel like, man, we just need to help God out. And if God could just understand, he would surely give us a pass. And then there's others of us tonight that are just walking in straight up ignorance. Just some ignorance. Like, we don't, we didn't know. We didn't, we weren't raised in church. We, I, we didn't realize that this thing that we were engaged in was idolatry. We just thought it was fun, you know? Uh, we didn't know about this particular area of our lives that needed to come under the submission, the rule, and the reign of Christ. We didn't know, and so we're walking in ignorance. And so now you know. Now you know. Now it's been exposed. Now you know that that thing that's going on in your heart is not um, is not just some small thing. It's idolatry. It needs to be repented of. And so let me take you back to Genesis 3. I want to read you just one more little verse here, and then we'll be done. And I want you guys to respond and think about where you're at tonight. Genesis chapter 3. At the end of all this rebellion, the end of all this kingdom being lost, there's this amazing promise that God's going to lay out in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, after he confronts the woman, she says, that the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Bible says that God curses all of creation. He curses Adam and he curses and he places them under a curse. But look at what he does in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, there's going to be a war between humankind and uh, Satan. This perpetual war that goes on. And he says, he will bruise your head. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And so he lays out this promise in Genesis chapter 1, the first gospel promise. And he says, even in the midst of all this fallenness, even in the midst of this brokenness, even in the midst of all this rebellion, he says, there's going to be one who's going to come in the line of, there's going to be one who's going to come in the line, the offspring of Adam and the offspring of Eve, and he is going to crush the head of Satan and sin and death and hell. He's going to put an end to those things. And while Satan will strike at his heel, while he will wound him, ultimately, this rescuer, this one who comes in the line of Adam and Eve, will come to rescue and will come to save. And he will crush, he will put an end to Satan, sin, and death. That promise... Jesus Christ. So the rest of the story, and we're going to see the rest of this week, is that the kingdom begins to unfold, that promise begins to unfold, and that God one day would send a rescuer who would crush the sin and the death and the hell. He would crush the rebellion. He would put an end to it by his own body. By allowing his own body to be beaten. By allowing his own blood to flow. That God and Jesus Christ, because He's merciful, because He loves us, because He is for us, because He is for our joy, made a way for us to be reconciled into a relationship with Himself. And so God sends Jesus again. He lives a life that we couldn't live. All the righteousness uh, that we could not obtain through our own efforts, Jesus lives that. And then He dies a death on a cross, a violent, bloody death where He's hung on a cross and He is nailed to a cross. The Bible says He's put into the ground after He dies and He's raised from the dead. And all of that is done because God in His mercy wanted to bring us back into a relationship with Himself. That God was not content to leave us in our idolatry and our rebellion. That God loves us. And that God, even despite the fact that we have turned our backs on God, even despite the fact that we rebel against God, He loves you. He is after you. He is pursuing you. And you can have a relationship with Him. You can be forgiven of sin. You can have those things wiped away. You can restore God to the place that He ultimately belongs to. And you can have a right relationship with Him. And so I just want to... I just invite you tonight and just to think about right where you're at, the rebellion that you're walking in. Because I bet in a room like this, man, with this many students, and there, there's rebellion that is so under the radar, and then your parents don't know. 
that you counselors don't know. Your, your pastors don't know. Your friends might not even know. Like there are secret parts of your heart that you you are just in, in rebellion. And God knows, right? There's nothing secret. There's nothing hidden from God. He knows. He's already seen. You know what's amazing about that? The Bible says in Romans 5 that despite um, our sinfulness, that God demonstrates His love for us in that while we are sinners, in the midst of our sin, right where you're at, you know that God still loves you. So some of you are feeling the weight of these decisions you've made. We are walking that, and you've walked that out, and you found that that doesn't deliver, that doesn't bring what it promised, whatever that thing was for you, that analogy for you. You've walked that out. And now you're, you, you feel crushed. You're like, some of you feel like, man, God could not forgive me. Like, this is so horrific. If I came clean with this, it would completely ruin me. And that shame and that guilt and that embarrassment is so heavy on me. And you know what's amazing is that God is not in love with some future version of you. God isn't in love with you 10 years from now. God isn't going, man, if you'll just clean yourself up, if you'll just kind of, you know, uh, give me, make, make a path for me, then I'll come in and do some work. That God loves you right where you're at. He loves you right in the middle of whatever that sin, whatever that rebellion, whatever that idolatry is. He is there and He loves you. He sent Jesus to clean that up. So you don't have to try to fix it. You don't have to try to manage. You don't have to try to control. You don't have to be afraid. All you have to do is just step out and submit. Submit your heart. Submit your life. Give it to Him. The Bible says that He died for that. To give you a fresh start. So some of you tonight, you need a fresh start. You need to walk away from some rebellion. You need to confess. Again, we said last night, I mean, there's, there's power, there's freedom in confession. And just going, you know what? This is who I am. This is the life that I've been living. I'm tired of pretending. I'm tired of performing and acting like I have some cape behind me fluttered in the wind. I'm ready to come clean and just be who I am and confess these things. And the Bible says if you'll do that, you'll find freedom and life and joy and satisfaction and all those things you've been seeking everywhere else other than, other than God. And this has been true of all And when I confess, when I come clean, when I come there's never been a time where he's turned me away. It's not happening. And so I just want to invite you, like, where are you at? Are you that person that's saying, man, I'm just out here and I'm sinning and I don't care? And that's a dangerous place to be, bro. It's a dangerous place to be. Maybe you're, again, you, you, you've, been, you've been rationalizing, you've been defending, you've been trying to explain why this particular situation, you have this, you have a card, you have a pass, and you say stop defending and stop rationalizing and just confess and say, you know what, this is wrong. This attitude that I've had, this, this, the way that I've been acting, this habit that I've been engaged in, that's wrong. I just need to, I need to bring it to the Lord. And then for those of you, man, you've just been ignorant. You've been ignorant, and you just need to, for the first time, lay those things down at God's feet, and you need to submit your life to the Lord of Christ. So I want to invite you, wherever you find yourself tonight, wherever you are, to respond. To respond. And if God is speaking to you, and I know that He is, and the Holy Spirit speaks through the Word, I know that God's dealing with you. Some of you right now, you're feeling that, you need to respond. You need to go talk to somebody. You need to just get out on your knees and spend some time before the Lord. I don't know what the response needs to be, but I just want to invite you wherever you are just to bow your heads, okay? Bow your heads, close your eyes. Again, nothing magical about this. I just want nobody looking around, nobody distracting anybody, nobody poking anybody, nobody, you know, looking around for the other person. I'm talking to you. What kind of rebellion are you walking in tonight? 
What kind of rebellion have you been walking in? So if you be honest with yourself and say tonight, man, I've been walking, there are some areas in my life where I'm just outright rebellion against God, and I need to get back into God. I need to, I need to experience His forgiveness, His grace, His mercy once again. I need, to, I need to experience that again. If you say that tonight about yourself, would you just again, would you just look up at me? I, I want to pray for you. I want to, I want to know who's, who's in that situation too, okay? Okay? Yeah. There's some areas in my life where I'm just rebellion, okay? Just look at me now as I look back now. I'm not going to embarrass anybody. I'm not going to call you out, okay? I just want to know how to start to pray for you, all right? And I'm rebelling. I need to come back to God, okay? All right? Okay. And I'm not sure that God loves me. I'm not sure. I'm questioning God's goodness for me, and I've just been in the okay? Okay? We're going to sing this song together. And I just want you to respond. Whatever the appropriate response is. And there are adults around here who love you, who are for you. They're not going to embarrass you. Whatever it is, I promise you, you will not say anything. Or they're going to laugh, or they're going to mock, or they're going to be surprised. And they're adults. They've been there. They've done that. They, they know what it's like to walk where you walk. And so there, there's some freedom tonight. So, and um, again, we said this last night. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. God wants you to move. God wants you to act. God wants you to respond, to repent of your sin, to turn to Him by faith and grab hold of the promises of Jesus' death and His work on the cross for you. So let me just, I want to pray for you. If that's you tonight, you need to respond. You need, you need to be, maybe become a Christian for the first time tonight, or you need to just get right with God and have that conversation. I want to invite you to go outside, talk to an adult in your seat right where you're at, get down on your knees, do some business with God. Maybe there's some sin in this room. There's some sin out here among some people tonight. Maybe you've sinned against somebody in this room tonight. You've sinned, you've been sinned against by somebody in this room. There needs to be some reconciliation that takes place between you. Whatever that is, I just want to invite you to respond. Let me pray for you. And then I'm going to step aside and I want to let these guys sing this song. You respond to the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for this uh, message of reconciliation that you've given us. God, that you love us, that you are for us, that you want nothing but joy and freedom for us. God, I pray that you would allow these students tonight to walk in the freedom and in the fullness of what you created them to experience. That they would stop rebelling, that they would stop thinking that their way is better than your way, that they would stop trying to find satisfaction, that they would stop placing their hope in things that cannot satisfy, that do not have the ability, were not created and intended to give them all that you have promised to give them in Jesus Christ. And so God, I pray that there would be submitting, I pray that there would be a handing over of our sin and our rebellion to you, and that God, we can walk in some freedom and some victory tonight because you promise forgiveness. You promise cleansing from our sin. We will turn from our sin and turn to Jesus. So God, I pray right now that there would be some turning. There would be some responding. There would be some confessing. There would be some reconciliation tonight. You've got to be done for your glory, for your fame, for your renown. I pray these things in Jesus' name.